And for the rest of us, uh, I'd invite you to turn in your Bible or in your, your uh, app, your Bible app, or on your bulletin to Ephesians 2, uh, 1, starting in 1, the book of Ephesians. And if you've been with us, you know that we've been without a series for a little bit. Typically at New City Fellowship, we walk through a, a series, whether it's a book of the Bible or a topic, and we've been in between a series. And so we saw at the beginning of the year, Pastor Thurman brought a powerful word, uh, advancing the gospel in 2023. And last week, we uh, not the liturgical calendar, but the, the U.S. calendar helped us guide, helped guide us into uh, Martin Luther King Day, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, as Pastor Anthony brought a powerful, powerful word. But in between those, Pastor Thurman challenged us to remember who we are. Who remembers that, that sermon? This is your quiz. All right, shout out to Pastor Thurman, raised his hand. He said, I remember it. And, uh, and it, what sticks with me is the illustration from The Lion King. You remember Rafiki bopping uh, Simba upside the head, talking about remember who you are. And as we enter into our new series, we get to do that very thing. That's just what we're going to do. We're going to walk through our core values, what it means to be part of New City Fellowship, these things that God has called us to, and these principles, these values that are our DNA that we are called to live out right here in the west side of St. Louis. And so we get to remember who we are as God's people in this place by looking at our core values. And our very first core value is sonship. And sonship is really the, the way to start because all the other values kind of pour out of this idea that we are God's children, that the, the power of the gospel is for us, that we are his children, uh, that we are chosen in him, and that we get to live this thing out. And so I'm going to open our time together in prayer, and then we're going to get right to it. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, we praise you, we worship you. We thank you for how you have called us to remember who we are, that you call us to yourself, but you give us a purpose, that you give us an identity. Lord, we are your children, and we pray that as we embrace this reality, as we hear this truth, that you would quiet our hearts and minds, that you would make us excited about being part of your people, part of your family, and that you would equip and empower us to do this high calling that you've called us to. Help us to live this out, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, well, some of you all know that uh, I've had my hand in DJing years ago. And uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about the St. Louis DJ scene is it's not super competitive. And what I mean by that is I've been in places where uh, if you're a DJ, other DJs want to throw shade, like they, they want to say they're better than you or they want to take your business or, or whatever the case may be. But what I found in St. Louis is, is everybody gets to eat. Like, like all the guys want to divide up all these gigs. There's plenty of opportunities. There's plenty of weddings. There's plenty of events, graduation, all that. And so there's camaraderie amongst the DJs. And so uh, years ago... Uh, a friend of mine 
who is also a DJ, has his DJ business. He, he reached out to me and said, hey, bro, uh, what happened was one of my DJs moved away or, or, did, or, or was no, no longer with the company, and he had more uh, gigs, more weddings than he could handle. And so he reached out to me and said, hey, could you take some of these off my plate? I said, of course. You know, we, we worked out our money, all that good stuff. But he said, why don't we get together for an interview? I was like, okay, all right, I guess you've got to cross your, your T's and dot your I's. You have to make sure you do your due diligence and all that good stuff. Um, and so we got together for an interview. And as we sat across the table, I was prepared to answer all the questions about how I can hold it down on a party, uh, my strengths and weaknesses, the things I do well, the things that other people do better than me. But what he asked me threw me off completely. Across the table, he looked at me and he said, who is Steve Schaefer? I said, uh, what? Like, what are we talking about? What are we doing here? And in the moment, it threw me off and I didn't have a great answer. I just kind of stumbled through about my story and, and this and that. I was defensive about the question, not because it was a bad question. I was defensive about it because I didn't have a good answer. Because I didn't know how to say, this is exactly who I am. This is who God has called me to be. This is why I DJ. This is why I like to rock the parties. God has made me this way. And because I didn't have an answer, I was mad in my feelings. And what I've experienced and, and been able to walk alongside plenty of people who haven't yet been able to answer this question, who are you? What happens when we can't answer that question is we're riddled with anxiety we're riddled with regret. We over and over go in our minds, I should have done it this way, I should have done it that way. I could have, I should have, I wish I would have. We lose sleep over what happened and, and what happened in the past. And we also struggle with things like indecision. I'm paralyzed to choose, I'm paralyzed to act. I have such a hard time committing. Uh, somebody might call it the Netflix syndrome or the Cheesecake Factory syndrome. You ever opened a cheesecake uh, menu? At the cheesecake factory, all right, just one person, okay. That mug is thick, right? And so you're overwhelmed with all these decisions and because I don't know who I am, I don't know exactly what I want, I don't know what I'm called to do, I struggle through these things. Now here, in scripture, we see Paul, the apostle Paul. And if we took that same question and posed it to him, he would answer it this way like he did to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. To the church at Corinth, he would say, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ. To the Galatians, he would say, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. See, there's no greater question to answer. There's no more important a question to answer. If I were to say to you, hey, meet me over here, let's link up, you, you would say, for what? What are we getting together for? I need to know what we're doing. What's the purpose of this? And yet, all of us who would need a reason to get together have not defined what your purpose is here on this earth. You haven't thought critically about who you are and what you're here for. So the question is, how do we Walk as Paul walked. How do we embrace this identity? Paul has this humble confidence. How do we get that for ourselves? 
Well, church, Paul knows exactly who he is because he knows whose he is. Paul knows who he is, what his purpose is. He's an apostle, what he's here to do. He knows who he is because he knows whose he is. And the reason why we're walking through Ephesians for our sermon today is because Ephesians is an identity book. It's all about who we are as believers in Jesus. And it's no coincidence that an identity book would have a reference to God as Father more than any other of Paul's writings. We can't decouple those things. Those things go together. If we're going to talk about identity, we're going to talk about God as our Father. And so that's what we're going to do today, church. Amen? Our big idea today is that because in Christ, God is Father, Christians know who we are. Because in Christ, God is Father, Christians know know who we are. And we're going to get, get at this uh, in three ways. We're going to ask the same question, who are you? And we're going to answer it in three different ways, so three different angles. So first, church, who are you? Our first point is that you are a child of God. You are a child of God. That's what we just sang. Look at Ephesians 1, and we're going to start at the end of 4 and then get into 5. God's word says that in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, and that's according to the purpose of his will. And, and I just want to make sure we don't get lost in the sauce here. There's a couple things that might send us in a couple different directions, and the first is that word sons. And I just want to encourage you that, that if, if that stands out to you as exclusive language, it's not inclusive language, I just want to encourage us to take off our 21st century hat and put on our first and second century hat. That Paul isn't trying to be exclusive. He's not trying to throw shade at all the ladies in the room, the daughters of God. It's just uh, the time and culture that they were in. So this word sons is an all-encompassing word for the children of God. The second way that we might get lost in the sauce here is that word predestination. Predestination. That's a tricky word for many. And don't get it twisted. I would love to talk to you all about this. Like, that was what my seminary degree was all about, right? We, we went all the way in on that. So I'd love to talk to you about it. But suffice it to say, what John says in 1 John, we love because what? He first loved us, right? Uh, if there's any, a choice, if I have a choice towards God, there's a recognition that he has already chosen me. And so with those things out of the way, Here's the meat. You are a child of God. It says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That word purpose, it means it was God's pleasure. It was God's goodwill. It was his approval. It was his satisfaction to, and we get to will, that means it was his desire in other words, it was God's joy and pleasure to make you his child. Are you hearing me today? Let me tell you what happens with my children. I say, did you hear me? And they say, yes, daddy. I say, no, 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 did you hear me? 
and I make them look at me in the eyes and repeat back what I said. Did you hear me? Because what happens as children of God, as believers in Jesus that that are adopted into the family of, of God, the household of believers, we hear God loves me and we go, oh, cool. Right on. God loves me. Amen. No, no. Do you hear that it was God's will and desire? God had to have you. It was his pleasure to have you. God loves you. Every eye up here, every ear. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Maybe, maybe when you hear that, your knee-jerk reaction is, is defensive. Uh, uh, I, that's hard for me to hear. God absolutely, unashamedly, 100%, he loves you. Here's the proof right here. In my, see, see, what happens, we'll get lost in the sauce. We'll look at according to the purpose of his will, and we'll decouple it. We'll take it apart from the fact that it starts by saying, in love. And so we'll say, oh, it is the purpose of his will. God, all high and mighty, just set things into be. And of course, yes, he loves me. No, no. It was his pleasure. It was his desire. He had to have you. God says, you are my first pick. You are my choice. You are who I want. I couldn't live without you. I wanted to have you as part of my people. I love you. Maybe for some of us, We need to hear that you are not an accident. You are not a mistake. God says you are supposed to be here. I wanted you in my creation as part of my people. You matter. He says, I want you. I chose you. I'm satisfied with you. I approve of you. I delight in you. Do you hear that? Do you you hear me? We need to know this. We need to know this for certain, that you are a child of God. It's incredibly important because if you don't get a hold of this, you won't be able to combat the lies that society, that even our own hearts would tell us about who we are. I can't tell you how many friends I have, and you have to excuse my harshness, but I have guys that would not even use the word father about that person. They would say these words. They would call him a sperm donor. That's it. That's all. That's all he contributed. He passed on DNA, he passed on genes, and nothing else. Or maybe the, the voice that you hear in your head about a, a, a father, that, that image of who that person is, he's harsh, he's cruel, he doesn't have time for you. He doesn't want you around. And so we have to inform our view, not based on who our dads are. We don't understand who God is based on who our dad or our authority views, or authority figures are. We understand the authority figure by who they're supposed to be through the lens of God. You understand that today? We switch it. We don't understand who God is by who our father was. We understand who our father was or was supposed to be in light of who God is. Remember back uh, uh, doing work day, so if you're not familiar with Workday, it's a ministry that serves the community, primarily widows with just a modest home repairs, people that would have an otherwise hard time keeping up their home. And there's a woman that we had built a relationship with, and I was over her house a lot. We talked to her, done a number of repairs on her house, and I came in on one hot uh, summer morning, and uh, sure enough, little man was right here in, in his diaper. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, what? Like, what's this little guy doing here? And I said, who is this? What's his story? And she just so casually, cavalier, just let it roll off the tongue. Oh, his mom doesn't want him. Oh, 
absolutely breaks, broke my heart. His mom doesn't want him. And yet we have that same mentality when we view God. And so we need to know that we are his children to combat these views. Let, let me ask, I heard a pastor who I follow and listen to his sermons from time to time. He did an exercise with his congregation that I'd like to at least walk through for a second. When you think about Jesus, if you were to close your eyes and in your mind's eye think about who Jesus is, what does he look like? What does he look like? I'll remind you that he's a Middle Eastern Jew, right? So probably darker complexion, dark hair, curly, locked up. His opponents would uh, call him a glutton, so maybe he's a little thicker than a lot of us think, right? But he challenged his people to think through what does Jesus look like? And when they opened their eyes, he said, how many, raise your hand, would have him smiling? Who would make him a smiling Jesus? Who would see him as smiling? And of course, he's a man acquainted with sorrows. He wept, all these things. But what is informing our view of Jesus more often than not is these portraits that artists have done years after year after year where he's just stoic and cold. You have a God who delights in you whose disposition is warm towards you, who cares deeply for you. It was his pleasure and his desire to have you. And so we must combat the views that we otherwise would have of God. There's another quick application that I just want to gently encourage you all as you consider that you are a child of God. And that is to stop dealing with your identity primarily by looking in and looking out. Now, it's important. Counseling's awesome. Searching yourself, is, is, that's great. Awesome. But we cannot let that be our primary way of knowing our identity. If you're looking into your heart to try to figure out who you are, the Bible says that above all, the heart is deceitful. So don't get it twisted. You're going to get off on some wild stuff. You're going to get way off track. Or the other way that we so often find our identity is by looking out. We say, this is who I am because this is what I do. Or people call me this, they identify me this way, and so therefore that must be who I am. But what this passage calls us to do is not to look in primarily, not to look out primarily, but to look up. You know who you are by whose you are. And so New City, who are you? You are a child of God. Second, New City, who are you? You are changed. You are changed. Everyone say changed. changed. Let's try that again. Everyone say changed. changed. I just want to make sure this heat isn't lulling you to sleep right now. All right. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Scripture says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now there's a lot here. There's a lot going on, but again, we're not going to get lost in the sauce. Here's what we need to learn from what Paul is saying here. Look at the past tense nature of this scripture. He says, you were dead. Not are, not we're dying, not we're about to die. You were dead. It's past tense. It's already happened. 
He says, in which you, in which you once walked, these sins, these uh, transgressions, you once lived this way. You used to be like that. And in verse 3, identifying everyone so he's not putting himself higher or lower, we were all in this situation among who we all once lived. We used to be like that. Here's the point. This is how it used to be, but something different has happened. This is how it once was, but something different. I used to be a son of disobedience, but now I'm a child of God. It used to be this way, but now something different has happened. And so what Paul is calling us to do is to look over our shoulder and remember where you've been changed from. Stop taking credit for how you've been changed. Look over your shoulder and remember how God has worked in your life to make you different. Uh, I had jury duty uh, this, well, I had jury duty selection. If you've had the privilege of being part of that in the city, may the Lord bless you. Uh, it, is not, it is not awesome. Um, but what happened was there's about 40 or 50 of us in a room. There's the prosecution and the defense. And what they're trying to do is find a fair and representative jury and so the way that they, they, they want to agree upon who the jury is going to be and the way that they do that is by asking all types of questions. And who's been through this process? Just so, okay, all right, yeah, that's how St. Louis is. Everyone has to do it. And so there came a point in jury selection where I would, was wrestling with how am I going to raise my paddle, yes or no? And it came around this part where they said, if you have any felonies, raise your paddle. And everyone's like, wait, wait a minute, what, what? Did no, then they got to misdemeanors, and then the part where I had to just moment split, split looking back to where I used to be was this part where they said, has anyone been arrested? You haven't been convicted or anything like that, but anyone been arrested, taken by the police? And in that moment, I was transported back to 1990-something. Uh, I was either in fourth, going into fifth grade or going into sixth grade. I can't remember what it was, but it was over the summer. And one of my boys called me collect from the local pool to say that my girlfriend, who was three years older than me, and her ex-boyfriend, who was also three years older than me, uh, were up at the pool, buddied up, hugged up, and that I needed to come and do something about that. I was like, all right, all right, okay, okay. And, and granted, again, these, they're older than me. I'm like, all right, I'm a little bit smaller. How am I gonna handle this? So I'm scared, but I'm hyping myself up. And in this process of fear, on my way to get ready to the, go to the pool, I grabbed the sharpest kitchen knife that I could find, put that mug right in my pocket. And I moved up there as quick as I could. I'm, I'm again, hyping myself up. Man, you better handle this. You better deal with this situation. And so as I get there, by God's grace, they weren't there. They had already left, or maybe my boys set me up, or whatever the case may be. They, I got up there, and I'm just hanging out. But amongst the lifeguards and amongst the staff, Word was buzzing that this little guy has a knife in his pocket. And before I knew it, the police, the local police were up at the pool and I'm in the back of a, a patrol car on my way to Park Forest Police Department. And they put me through kind of a, 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 a video about what knives can do and they called my mom and, and, and the situation. I didn't raise my paddle, transported back there. I didn't raise my paddle because they didn't put my name down. They didn't take my fingerprints. They didn't book me or take my picture or anything like that. But right there in jury duty selection, in my head, in my heart, I'm having a praise break. Praise the Lord. In that moment, I remember how I used to be, but now I'm not that way anymore that there was a direction that I was going on, but now there's a different direction that I'm going on. I had a relative who looked me square in the eye and said, you're gonna be dead or in jail by the age of 21. And that came right back to me this week because 
two different times in two different places with two different people, I had people walk up to me and say, say, were you incarcerated between this time and that time? And I got to have another praise break and say, by God's grace, no. But it could have been, it could have been, maybe it should have been in some ways. By God's grace, I was going one way and he would set me another way. And so what we do, what the call is to do is to look back at how we've been changed and stop taking credit. It's not just because you got a little older. It's not because you went through a little experience. It's not because you got wiser. It is the grace of God that you would be turned from a son of disobedience to a child of God. I'll preach, man. And so the call here, when we think, who are you? Who are you? I am changed. Now, there's a couple hurdles here. Well, first, I just want to say, that's not to say that you can't be in the penitentiary and find God or, or, or be a Christian in the penitentiary. Paul was in prison with m- many of these letters. So I, I just want to say that. But maybe more importantly, there's a misunderstanding that often happens when we get to a point about being changed. And when I ask somebody, if you are a Christian, there's a, there's a, 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 a feeling, a sense that um, I am not a Christian because I haven't changed enough. It, it, there's a, there's a, I know that Christians are supposed to change, but I haven't changed enough and therefore I cannot be a Christian. Can I just politely but firmly say you know nothing about Christianity? You don't understand it at all. Lovingly, gently, as best as I can, but, but you have to confront this reality because there are people, even in this room, even in our hearts, even at times we go back a different way where we think, are you a Christian? Oh, I'm trying. I'm trying to be. That is not how it works. Absolutely not how it works. Let me say it like this. If my daughters, if one of my daughters is on a pedestal to get an award, and somebody says, are you Pastor Steve's daughter? She'll say yes. If she's in the principal's office, if she's in the squad car, and somebody asks her, are you Steve Shaper's daughter? She better say yes. It's not her works. It's not what she did that makes her my daughter or not my daughter. You think you have to earn, you think you have to do all these things in order to be God's child. He says, no, no. I claim you, you are mine. I love you apart from the things that you did, apart from how lazy you are, or how hardworking you are. You are my child, I'm pleased with you. I'm delighted in you. So what we have to get a hold of is this change doesn't mean I'm changing in order to get to God. We change because God has already got a hold of us. And there's another way that we might get this wrong, this point of I'm changed. And that occurs like this. I hear you were on your way maybe to a a wrong direction. I hear those stories where somebody was going one way and then they completely turned and went another way. I didn't have that story. Am I a Christian? And a little more gently than before, I'll say this. If you recognized that you were walking in sin, if you recognized that you were a sinner, a son of Adam, if you recognized that you needed a savior, you have changed. You put that faith, you put that hope, you put that trust in Jesus. You have changed. And praise God that he spared you for the consequences for how ratchet you could have been. 
how messed up you could have been. You could have been out there in the streets doing this, that, and the other, but God spared you from that because you recognized maybe as an infant, maybe as a child, maybe very early on, you recognize that you're a sinner, sinner and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you uh, uh, believe that God rose him from the dead, uh, raised him from the dead, and you are saved. And so, whether you've had a drastic conversion or not, if you move from death to life in, in offering to Christ your life, saying, I'm a sinner apart from what Jesus has done, you will be saved. And let me just take one step back real quick. If that's you earlier who said, I will work my way to Jesus, who said, uh, are you a Christian? And you said, I'm trying. Don't let today pass you by. Don't let today pass you by from moving from death to life. Don't let today pass you by from moving to darkness to light. That you can confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. And just like that, it is a gift to be received. You are adopted into the family of God. You are his child and you are changed. Don't let this pass you by. All right, our last point. New City Fellowship, who are you? You are changed, but not only are you changed, you are changing. You see, we've just seen that the identity produces the change. The change doesn't produce the identity, which is why when asked the question, who are you, we can confidently say we are changing. There is hope for you. Like a fine wine, you're getting better with time. Amen? Amen. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Let's say, imitate God to become children. Don't miss the last point, that's not what it's saying. You are already children, therefore be imitators of God. Now, the translators have a hard time with this word imitators here. Because elsewhere in the New Testament, when this word is used, talking about a human to human relationship, the word is become. So maybe you remember Paul, uh, example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 would say, to the weak I became weak, to the Jew I became a Jew, I became all things to all men that I might win some. And so if that's the word there, you see why the translators are in a bit of a bind? Say, uh, you become God. They're like, nah, no, 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 not. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to say I become God. God is distinct. God is other. God is something else. I'm a broken sinner. I'm not going to say I become God. And that's true. But in a sense, you do grow up into God. In Christ, who is the head, we mature and grow up into his image. There's a, a sense that we become more and more like God. Not of our own work, but being sanctified, trusting and believing in him. We become more like him. And I, I, think, I think to some degree we get this just in watching a Super Bowl commercial or watching a football commercial. Anyone seen the progressive commercials talking about you become like your dad? You've you seen these before? The most recent one I saw, the idea is that when you get a home, then something happens, something's triggered where you become just like your dad or your, your parents. And the last one I saw is my man was out at his trash bins, spraying it with Windex, like cleaning it up on the outside. It was totally clean. And the wife or the, uh, the, the, his lady was like looking on, like, look what he's become. 
And, and the reason why these are so funny is because it, it's true. There's a sense of truth when anytime something's funny like that. And even in my own life, I, I, uh, my, my sweet, dear wife, every, night, every now and then she'll say, uh, I'll say something or I'll do something, and she'll say, okay, Peter Shaper. It's talking about the, the OG, right? My, my dad, my old man. Okay, Peter Shaper. And I'm like, ooh, you caught me. And so we know, we know kind of what Paul is getting at here in a sense because we have a father, there's a resemblance. Because he is like that, we begin to grow up into him. And the same is true for us as believers in Jesus Christ. We become like the father. You are changing into the resemblance of God as beloved children. And so we must ask, how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, verse 2 tells us. The scripture says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what we have here is Old Testament language about how God dealt with sin for his people. And it's interesting that we would be talking about sonship, we would be talking about identity as changing people in light of the way that the Old Testament deals with the relationship between God and his people. Do you know that in the Old Testament, uh, the term father, it's only used for God about, there, there's some debate, but, but a, good, a good guess would be 14 times. It's only 14 times that God would be called father in the Old Testament. And typically when it's talking about the, the son, it's talking about the communal people of God. Typically it's talking about Israel, not a personal relationship. But here, in the New Testament, in Paul's letters, and throughout the New Testament, we see you are a, he is your father, you are a son, you are children, he is your father, again and again and again. Why is it 14 times versus 100, 100 times? Well, it's the Gospels. In the Gospels, Jesus Christ refers to God as Father more than that is the only way that he refers to God as Father. Over 60 times, again and again and again, he would say, uh, my Father says, this is my Father. He would pray to his Father. This is the primary way that the Son, that Jesus Christ, the Son, interacts with the Father. But there is one time, there's one time that he doesn't address him as Father. Maybe some of you recognize and you remember on the cross, Jesus is not only quoting, but he's embodying Psalm 22. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? What's happening in that moment is that the just punishment for the sons of disobedience is being cast onto Jesus. You see, he said that it was the joy that was set before him. That joy is you. The joy that was set before him, he would endure the cross. He would go through this to get you because he wanted you. And God is just, and so he has to punish sin. And so Jesus would go to the cross and say, I will be the sacrifice. I will be the offering so that your justice can be secure and whole and your mercy and your grace can be secure and whole too. And so all those who would believe in Jesus, your sin is put on him and it is punished forever. John, uh, John 1 would say, uh, he is, nope, that's not it. Um, he is given the right to become children of God. The right, you have a right to all the access, the privileges, you have a right to all that Jesus has accomplished 
all that, you get to receive the inheritance through faith in him. And so how is it that we can call him father? It's because Jesus has given us his status as the true son, and he has taken on all of our sin as sons of disobedience so that you and I have access again and again. We can come. We can come. And so, church, the challenge is to do that. Who are you? You are sons and daughters of God, changed and changing. Let's pray together.